You guys doing good today? Okay, let's jump right into it today. We've been in this collection of talks called Friend of Sinners, and uh, it's, been, it's been really good. How many of you have jo- enjoyed this, uh, this series of, of discussions that we've had? I know last week we had a guest here, Pastor Josh Canazero. What a great word and, uh, and, and that we have with him. But this week we're wrapping up our collection, Friend of Sinners, and, um, and it's getting us ready for, it sounds like it's feedbacking a little bit. Just let me know if I need a different mic. Um, but this week we're wrapping this up on Palm Sunday and getting ready for next week. And, and really this whole collection of talks has been based on really two things. Number one, a friend of mine wrote this book called Friend of Sinners. And it's really, it's, it's focusing on this, that God's more concerned with relationship than with perfection. God wants, God wants to be in relationship with us. He's not looking for uh, moral, you know, the morally elite. He's not looking for perfect people. He's looking for people that will put their life in his hands, be in relationship with him, and allow him to transform and change their lives. And so uh, since my friend wrote this book, I, I love the title. I was like, I really like that, Friend of Sinners. So let's, let's use that to lead up until Easter. And uh, the other thing is this, is I, I, I really believe that um, one of the things that, that the church oftentimes have, has problem with, problems with is relating to those outside of the church. And, um, and, and let me just establish this right now is that whenever I say friend of sinners, um, all of us qualify uh, for the sinner uh, tag, the sinner category, right? We all qualify. Look at the person sitting next to you and tell them, say, you're not perfect. Just sitting by your spouse, let them know, say, you're not perfect. You're, you're not. And, uh, you know, the Bible, it actually tells us this. The Bible says in Romans 3 says that everyone has sinned. Everyone. We've all sinned. We've all messed up. Everyone's sinned. Everyone's fallen short of God's glorious standard. And I think we live in a culture where people like to say, well, you know, sin is a very strong word. Uh, that's a very harsh word. You know, I don't, I, don't, I don't like sin. I like mistakes. Like, I make mistakes. But listen, let me tell you that mistakes are whenever you forget to put a comma somewhere or when you forget to move the decimal over one point. That's a mistake. That's, you know, adultery. Uh, lying, stealing, that's not a mistake. That's sin. The Bible says that's sin, right? And the reality is, is that we all, we fall short. We miss it. We miss the mark. And the word sin simply means, it's like a, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, a word for like a target where there's a bullseye in the middle and you're aiming for that bullseye, but you don't quite hit it. You, you miss it. Maybe you miss it by an inch or maybe you miss it uh, by like my life, sometimes like 15 feet, right? And you miss it. You can miss the mark in your marriage. You can miss the mark with your kids. You can miss the mark in your finances, the way that you steward your resources. There's, there's lots of different areas that we can miss the mark. And when it says that, that we've all sinned, it just simply means we've all missed the mark. We've missed God's best for our life. And we all qualify to be called sinners, but guess what else we all qualify to be called? Friends. We all qualify to be called friends of God because God is a God of grace. God is a God of love. God is a God of second chances. The Bible says that every single morning, that was this morning, every morning God's mercies are brand new. And so even though we may qualify uh, to be called sinners, guess what else? We qualify to be called the friends of God because God's got love, grace, and mercy for us. He's got truth for us, but he he speaks truth in in love and he wraps it in grace because he loves us and he cares for us. And so we've been in this, this little talk about friend of sinners and uh, I've really enjoyed it um, because it really, it's kind of, it's spoken to us about as insiders, as church people or Christians. And maybe you're here, listen, today, and you're like, I'm not a church person. I'm not a Christian. I just came here because I heard you give away free coffee. Listen, that's awesome. That's totally cool. We're glad that you're here and we have great coffee. So uh, keep coming. Um, but, but let me just speak to those of you that maybe you're insiders. I think a lot of times we struggle to relate with those outside the church. Uh, we either can, can you know, get around them and, and be judgmental or we can get around them and just be weird. And, and, and then people outside the church think God's weird. Listen, God's not weird. Christians can sometimes be weird. 
And so we have to learn how do we relate with those maybe outside of the church? Because Jesus, though he was the most holy man to ever walk the face of the earth, the most unholy people, they were actually attracted to him. That people that were nothing like the church or people that were not religious, that were irreligious or non-religious, for some reason there was something about Jesus that they were attracted to and they wanted to be around him. They would actually have weddings and invite him. They would have dinner parties and it would just be a crazy party and they would invite Jesus. And here's what's crazy, Jesus would actually go to the party. Jesus would integrate his life with people that were not like God, that were irreligious, non-religious people, without compromising the, con- the content of his character or the clarity of his message. And that's what's so beautiful about Jesus. And so we've been leaning into this collection saying, hey, if Jesus was a friend of people that maybe aren't necessarily religious or irreligious or just far from God, maybe as the church, if we're gonna make a difference, that's part of our vision statement, know God, find freedom, discover purpose, and make a difference. If we're gonna make a difference, we have to learn how to build our lives, integrate our lives around people that maybe aren't Christians or maybe aren't church people and love them, serve them, care for them, minister to them the way that Jesus did and watch God use our lives to impact the lives of other people. That's our desire. And so we've been talking about that the last few weeks, but I love this idea of friend of sinners because um, Jesus made this statement right at the end of his life. This is one of the last thing he told his sinner friends these disciples and some of his crew, he said this to these guys right before he went to the cross. He said, this is my commandment, love each other in the same way I have loved you, John 15. There is no greater love, look at this, than to lay down one's life for one's friends. Jesus said this this week, 2,000 years ago, the week of Easter week, the Passover week, Jesus made this statement to his friends, his sinner friends. He said, listen guys, there's no greater love then one person would give up their life, lay down their life for their friends. And Jesus not only told them to do that, he said, watch, I'm gonna go and do it. And he went and laid down his life for his friends. And that's really what this whole week is about. That's what Easter is about. It's about Jesus, this friend of sinners, going to a cross and laying down his life, having his his blood shed and his life killed. He was killed at the hands of people that thought he was a criminal, that thought he was crazy. He laid down his life in our place so that we could be at peace with God and have relationship with God. That's the whole message of the gospel. That's the message that Jesus died on the cross, but there was another Sunday. See, today is Palm Sunday, and we have that dark day on Friday, triumph to tragedy, but then on the third day, there was another triumph, and it's Easter. It's resurrection. And because Jesus died for us, we can have forgiveness of our sins. But because he rose from the dead, we have hope. We have hope that death is not final. We have hope that the people that are your friends and family members that maybe have, that have go, already gone, they were in Christ and they've gone to be with the Lord there in heaven, one day you'll be with them again. And that's the hope that we have, the hope of the resurrection. And if we don't have the resurrection, we are to be pitied among all, of, of all people, Paul says. We have a hope, we have a resurrection, and we'll celebrate that next Sunday. But today I wanted to do something a little different. I want to I want to focus on the passage that was read earlier, Matthew chapter 21, and share with you just a few thoughts for a moment. And I'm going to zip through this really quick. We've already had a great encounter with God. Uh, But let me read this to you. Matthew 21, this was on Palm Sunday. We get this idea of Palm Sunday from what you'll see in here, palm branches that were waved whenever Jesus was coming into Jerusalem, um, that final week of his life. It says this, as they approached Jerusalem uh, and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, two of his friends, he sent two of them saying, go to the village ahead of you and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. The colt was, um, was a, a, this baby donkey, this fowl that had never been ridden before. And in Jewish tradition and according to the law in the Old Testament, 
only animals that had never been ridden, that had never been used for labor, could be used for sacred things. So Jesus says, go and get this, this animal because something sacred is about to happen. This, I want you to, don't get the one that has been used, been ridden before, get the one that has never been used, that has been set apart for what I'm about to do. So he goes on, he says, go to the village ahead of you at once and find the donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, say to, the, say to them that the Lord needs them, the master needs them, and they will send them right away. Uh, it says, this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Uh, say, to da- say to the daughter Zion, this is out of Zechariah, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the, fo- uh, the, foal, that, uh, the foal of a donkey. This is one that's never been ridden. The disciples went and they did as Jesus had instructed them. Uh, they brought the donkey and... Um, they brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks, their coats, on them for Jesus to sit on him. It says, uh, a very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees. These are the palm trees, and they spread them on the road. This is the crowds uh, that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted. So it's a huge procession all around Jesus, and Jesus is riding on this little bitty donkey. And they were, just, they were just yelling this phrase, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna means save now. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, look at this, the whole city was stirred. I love that. I'm praying that God would stir our city, that he would shake our city. The whole city would stir. And this is what they were asking. Who is this? Who is this? They weren't talking about the donkey. <laughs> they were talking about Jesus. Who is this? this? This whole procession around them. Who is this? The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Now, here's, here's what I felt like the Lord wanted me to talk to you about. I actually wrote these thoughts down this morning when I was praying. I was going to talk about something different. But what happened between Sundays? What, what happened on, on this triumphal entry, Palm Sunday there are crowds of people that are just praising Jesus, celebrating him. This is at the height of his popularity. He had just raised Lazarus from the dead. I mean, everyone's like, this, this is the guy. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one that we've been waiting for. And they're singing his praises. And then by Friday, the same crowd kills him. What happens in the course of four or five days there that shifted the crowd from palms to thorns? This was a crowd that, that had palm trees waving them saying the palm trees represent peace and prosperity and blessing and wealth and health. They're saying there's a new era. Our Messiah has come. He's here and there's a new era. And then within a few days, they drop their palms and they pick up thorns and they crown him and they crucify him. The same crowd that was yelling Hosanna days later would be saying crucify him. What happened in between those days? Here's what I think it was. It was disappointment. It was an unanswered prayer and an unfulfilled promise. Because this Jesus that they thought when they saw him on Sunday, that he's the fulfillment of the, pro- the prophecy that, that our king is coming. And he's the answer to the prayer. Hosanna is a prayer, not a praise, it's a prayer. Save us now, deliver us now. And, and the first thing they thought he was going to do was go to the Roman palace or the Roman, um, the governor's palace inside those walls of Jerusalem. And that he would go in there and that he would overthrow the Roman Um, the Roman oppression and the tyrancy of them. And the first thing he does, he doesn't go to the steps of the Romans. He goes to the steps of the church, the temple. And he turns the temple upside down and he starts cleaning shop. And their mind is blown because they think you were the most promised, uh, the most promising leader that we had coming for us. 
and now you've let us down. So here's what I want to talk to you about for a moment. What do you do when, when you're divinely disappointed? What do you do when, when God lets you down? What do you do when the prayers you've been praying go unanswered? What do, what do you do when the promises that you've journaled about, you've prayed about, you've believed, you've held on to, what do you do when you feel like God has disappointed you? How do you handle it? How do we deal with it? I want to give you a few thoughts around that. Let me just pray for us. Father, we love you. Speak to us in just the next few moments today. I know that you could speak to us really fast. It only takes one word and one moment. So speak to us today as we lean into your word. We love you. We honor you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Can we clap our hands for God's word? It's great. So let me just paint the picture for you, and I'm going to give you just three really quick points that I think will encourage you and share with you one more scripture. Here's the setting for Palm Sunday. The setting for Palm Sunday. This is Passover week. If you remember, Passover was a festival that they would celebrate that week, celebrating, um, celebrating the liberation of the Jewish people under another empire. It was whenever the Jewish people of God, they were, remember, they were slaves in Egypt for a few hundred years there, and uh, it was very bad. I mean, the, this, this oppression was terrible. Uh, these slaves would work nonstop. They had no freedom to worship. I mean, it was a very bad situation, and it's one of the darkest ages in the Jewish uh, people's history. And, um, and the Passover celebration was celebrating simply this is that in the middle of this like 400 years of oppression and slavery underneath an empire, this regime, this Egyptian regi regime, that God raised up a deliverer named Moses. Remember that? Let my people go, right? Raised up Moses, the deliverer, the savior of the people of God, who then comes in and uh, he, he speaks to Pharaoh on behalf of God and he says, hey, uh, it's been too long. You've held my people long enough. Let my people go. And remember, there were t 10 different plagues. And you can read the, the account uh, back there in, in Exodus and it can seem a little bit, you know, far-fetched. It can seem a little bit crazy. I, I get it, but uh, I just, you know, I, I just believe God's word. I believe that God's word is true. And uh, when you look at it, it's crazy because 10 different plagues get sent. And the last one, the final plague, and these plagues were basically God sending judgment on Egypt and trying to get them to loose their grip uh, upon the Jewish people. And they just wouldn't loose their grip. And finally, the last one was the death angel is what it was called. And, uh, and it was simply this, that this, this death angel was sent through all throughout Egypt and, um, and it would take the firstborn of the family. Now, here's, this was the little, little piece that God said. I tell you what, if my people will just take a lamb without defect, a flawless lamb, a perfect lamb, and slay that lamb, and then take the, I know this sounds crazy, but take the blood from that lamb and, and put it on the doorpost of your home, then when the death angel comes across Egypt, then it says this, out of my grace, out of my mercy, God says, if I see the blood of the lamb that has been slain on your doorpost, I will pass over, the death angel will pass over and your firstborn will not be killed. So all the Jewish people did this and uh, Pharaoh did not and the Egyptians did not and they lost all the firstborn of their children, history tells us. And this was the turning point. This was the catalyst that finally Pharaoh and Egypt said, we can't hold God's people hostage anymore. We can't hold them in slavery anymore. Get them out of here. We don't want them anymore. And so this Passover celebration is them remembering hundreds of years before, remembering when God wrote, he raised up a liberator, a deliverer, that came in and set the people free and that God showed his grace upon his people by allowing that death angel to pass over. So Passover is where we get that from, right? 
And, um, and so here's what you, when you start to read history, it's pretty amazing because at this time, um, if you were a male Jewish man within 15 miles of Jerusalem, it was by law that you had to come to Jerusalem for Passover week for this festival, for this huge celebration. As a matter of fact, here's just to give you an idea of how big this moment was that Jesus uh, comes come strolling into town on this donkey. Um, here's how many people that most scholars believe were there. They believe there were about two and a half million Jewish people crammed into Jerusalem at this time. I've been to Jerusalem before. It's a big, beautiful city, but I can tell you this, two and a half million people crammed in there. It's about like, you know, San Francisco, right? It's like, we're just on top of each other. And, um, and, and, and when you read these different, different scholars, this is what they say. For every, this was the law, for every 10 people that were in a party during the festival, then one, one lamb could be slain. And 30 years after Christ died on the cross, there was a governor, a Roman governor, that took a census of, he wanted to know how many lambs have been slain during Passover week. And they found there were 250,000 plus lambs slain. That's where we get two and a half million people. So there, imagine this, it's like New Year's Eve, Times Square. People crammed all in on top of each other. That's what Jerusalem was like in this moment. Now, even imagine this. What are they celebrating? They're celebrating that God has given us this leader, Moses, who stepped in in our oppression as we were being just, you know, underneath this tyrant leader and underneath this regime. God sent us a deliverer, and he got us out of this mess, and he overthrew that Egyptian uh, government. And, and now that's what they're celebrating. So... They're, these Jewish people living in their city, but at this time, when Jesus is there, they're under Roman rule. And, 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 and they're under the laws of the Romans. And the Romans were oppressing them, not to the degree that the Egyptians were, but they definitely were oppressing them. And so the Jewish people, here's what they're thinking. I'm ready for God to do it again. I'm ready for him to raise up another leader. Matter of fact, there were all these Old Testament prophecies that God himself would come down and be their liberator and would liberate them and would set them free finally and then he would take his throne and that he would lead his people and he would lead them in peace and prosperity and health and wealth and all these things. And this is the climate that Jesus rides this donkey into town. But there was another procession, most scholars believe, that day. Not just this Jesus, this maybe this, this new liberator coming into town, but there was another procession. You know what it would have been? It would have been the Roman governor because the Romans would, they would beef up their military and their security during that Passover because they had it, they've had people try it before, revolt and rise up and try to create chaos and, and crazy stuff. And so many scholars believe that either on that same day or at least the days before that, that Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor and the military would have come in on a horse with chariots, with their weapons, coming in and trying to communicate this message to the Jewish people. Listen, don't try anything crazy. <laughs> we're here. Putting their, putting their thumb down, we're here. Don't try anything crazy. This would have been a, a procession of power, and yet Jesus comes in the procession of peace. A donkey represented for kings. Kings would go out to war on a horse, but they'd come back after victory riding a donkey, representing peace has now come. So Jesus gets on this donkey, imagine this, and he's riding in, and the people are like, this is him. He's just raised someone from the dead. He's, he's the one that everyone's been talking about. Zechariah 9, the prophecy says that when, when this liberator comes, when the Messiah comes, he's going to come riding on a little donkey. And that's why they're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, save us now. They're saying that, Jesus, you're the one we've been waiting for. You're the prayer we've been praying all this time. Let's get the Romans out of here and let's set up shop. You be our king. You be our leader. And Jesus is just is seemingly silent. 
When you read some of the other gospel accounts, you actually see that Jesus had tears in his eyes because he knew you're missing the point. I've come here to, to deliver you from something greater than the Romans. I've come here to deliver you from something on the inside of you. I've come here to do a deeper work, a deeper deliverance. I wrote down just three things. So what do you do? You feel like God's disappointed you because that's what they felt. This crowd turned on Jesus because they felt like you've let us down. You've disappointed us. We thought you were going to come in and clean out the Romans, but instead you came and you just started flipping over our religious tables and you've let us down. You're not the one. You're not the one we've been waiting for. These were false claims. And I think a lot of times we can feel, maybe not to that degree, but we can, we can sometimes look at the crowd and we can say, man, these guys were bad. But a lot of times I do the same thing. I can come to church and have palm branches praising him on Sunday and God not answer my prayer. And on Thursday, I'm crossing my arms and I'm disappointed because he hasn't healed my son because he hasn't restored the marriage, because he hasn't given you the job, because you haven't got the financial breakthrough, because whatever, fill in the blank. And we can be disappointed with God. What do you do when you feel disappointed with him? When your marriage doesn't get fixed, when you don't get the job, matter of fact, when you lose the job, when your finances are a wreck, when the dream doesn't happen, what do you do? Here's the first thing. First thing I wrote down is this. You need to know this. Here's some reminders. God doesn't always answer our prayers on our terms or time, but we can trust that he has a plan. When you look at the Palm Sunday moment, in every one of the Gospels, it's in all four of the Gospels, Jesus is so deliberate in what he's doing. He's orchestrating everything. You look at that whole week, I mean, he tells them, listen, you're going to go to this town, and you're going to see two donkeys there. You're going to go up to the guy, and you're going to tell them, hey, the Lord has need of them. And have you ever wondered, like, this guy's just like, okay, just go. It's, the picture is that Jesus has gone before them, and made arrangements with this donkey owner and said, here's the password, so to speak. Here's the code word. When you have some, some guys come up to you and say, hey, the Lord has need of them, that's me. Just let the donkey go, okay? Turn to your neighbor and say, let the donkey go. Jesus even sent his disciples later on, hey, go, there's an upper room, there, there's, there's a table that's going to be set, go and prepare that place. There's, Jesus organized and arranged every single one of these details. Why? Because he had a plan. Passover, they didn't take Jesus' life this week. He gave his life this week. He had a plan. God had a plan. I just want you to know this today. I felt this when I was praying for you. If you're praying for something and you're, and you're asking God for something or you have this promise you've been holding on to and it hasn't happened on your terms, it hasn't happened in your time, listen to me. Just trust me. God has a plan. You got to know that God has a plan. My wife and I were driving back from uh, up in like Napa Valley area yesterday. And uh, for some reason, we turned on country music, which we don't even like. Uh, and I was thinking about country songs like when I was growing up. There was a song that this guy named Garth Brooks sang called, um, uh, I wrote it down. What is it? Uh, some of God's greatest gifts are unanswered prayers. I hate that song. <laughs> Worst song ever. Great theology, bad song. Okay. It's like some of God's greatest gifts. Listen, the job you prayed for and you hoped for and you didn't get, could it have been God's favor? See, God's, God's word says in Psalm 5, God blesses the, the righteous and he surrounds him with favor like a shield. His favor sometimes provides and sometimes protects. Could it be that that unanswered prayer or that unfulfilled promise is that God's got a better plan than yours or mine? We have to trust that God's got a better plan. 
This I wrote down in my journal. What type of prayers would we pray if we knew what God knows about our situation? How different would our prayers look? We gotta know that God's got a plan. We've been praying for my son to be healed. Nixon, he's got eczema. I've told you about that a few times at our church. Allergies, eczema, and seemingly like some asthma type things. And I don't understand why God hasn't done it yet. I don't understand why he hasn't healed him. I don't understand why he's still struggling. But I have to come back to this place where I say, God, I have a plan how I wish it would work out, but I trust that your plan is better. I'm going to keep believing in your prayer. Here's the second one. Look, write this down. Second one. Sometimes there's a deeper work underneath the surface of our situation that God desires to do. Listen, here's what the Jewish people wanted on Palm Sunday. Jesus, you come this way. Let's go straight up to Pontius Pilate's place, and let's just clean shop, and just like, that's going to fix our situation. And Jesus is like, the situation is much deeper than Rome. That's a surface situation. There's something so much deeper than just Pontius Pilate, the Roman tax, and what you see, because we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities. That, 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 that's, Jesus is trying to help them. Guys, you've got to see there's something deeper than what you, what's at the surface. This surface, this situ- situational surface level thing that you're dealing with and you're going through, there's something deeper, and I want to actually do a deeper work. Uh, my friend Steve Ware, I've told you about him before, he passed away last year from cancer. He battled it for a couple of years. But when he was battling cancer, we would pray together often. He would call me, we would pray about healing. But I remember one time he told me this. He said, Jason, he goes, here's what I'm praying. I'm praying that, that God will heal my body so that I can walk my, my kids down, my daughters down the aisle in marriage. I want to see my kids. I want to grow older with them. I want to have grandchildren. He goes, so I'm praying. That's my plan. That God's going to miraculously heal me. He said, that's what I'm praying. He said, but I'm also praying another prayer. God, if there's something deeper you want to teach me in this cancer, will you teach me that? And that's what he was praying. And by the end of his life, you know what he told me? Tears in his eyes one day. He said, you know what? Here's what God taught me through my cancer. God taught me how to be a good dad. He taught me how to be a good husband. He taught me how to be a good friend. Am I saying that God brought cancer? Absolutely not. But with the situations that we go through, we can pray a different prayer and say, God, is there something deeper, more than just solving the problem of getting Rome out of here, more than just healing my body, more than just giving me the job, more than just the breakthrough in the finances? Is there a deeper thing that you want to do in me? Lord, will you teach me what that could be? And then the third one is this. Is I love this one. Just write this down. You need to re-preach this to yourself tomorrow, Okay. Faith is believing in advance would only make sense in reverse. Faith is believing in advance would only make sense in reverse. The disciples did not understand what was happening. Not only did the crowd not understand, the disciples did not even understand. Jesus' closest friends, in that moment, they, they just missed it. When you read the, the gospel of John's account of the triumphal entry, in John chapter 12, verse 1 through like 15, it talks about everything that we just read in Matthew 21. But after the procession, after the palm trees, after all this, look what it says in verse 16. It says, at first, so right after the procession, at first his disciples did not understand all of this. Only after Jesus was glorified, that's after he died and rose again and went to, ascended to heaven, only after all of that did they realize these things had to be written about. Isn't that amazing? It was only after the fact. It's like the light bulb finally went off. These disciples were dumb. I, I, I can totally relate to them. There's sometimes I'm in the middle of something. I'm like shaking my head. God, I don't know what you're doing. I don't know why this happened like this. I don't know what's going on here. But God, I choose to believe in advance 
what's probably only going to make sense in reverse. In five years or in 10 years, when I look back and I go, oh my gosh, now I see. Now that makes sense. Now that makes sense that, that everything that happened in 2013 where we had to move and go to Dallas, and I didn't know it at the moment, but those years in Dallas, you taught me not just how to be a son and a servant, but to be a shepherd, and you were preparing me for what you've prepared for me, which was to be in San Francisco to be a pastor. But back in 2013, when my world was falling apart and I looked around, I didn't know what was happening, but by faith in advance, I had to believe that what you were doing in 2013 would actually make sense in 2018. And that's how God works. In advance, we say, God, I choose to believe in advance that, that, that whatever you're doing, it's only going to make sense in reverse when we look back in this moment. Elton, why don't you come up here and close this out with some very spiritual music. Thank you. <laughs> so what do we do with our disappointment? I didn't really tell you exactly what to do, but I'm going to tell you exactly what I want you to do. Because here's, this, this morning I felt like God said there's a few people, maybe a few people, that are dealing with divine disappointment. That is that you're disappointed with God. What do you do with it? When a dark cloud of disappointment is over you, how do you handle it? You know you handle it? The same way Jesus did. How did Jesus do it? And I'm, I'm talking about deeper than just a what would Jesus do bracelet, okay? Like, how did Jesus deal, deal with his disappointment? Because, you know, he was actually disappointed. There was a moment where he was in the middle of a dark cloud not knowing what was happening. Like, he, it was when he went to the cross. Remember this? He goes to the cross. He's been obedient to his father. He, he's stepped out in faith that I'm going to lay down my life and the father's going to raise me up. I mean, that's a faith step right there if I've ever seen one. And he has this dark moment on the cross. And he has this dark moment because he did this in our place because I believe he knew we would go through disappointment. I want you to look at this. Here's what it says. At the very darkest moment in Jesus' life, on the cross... Matthew 27 on that Friday, from noon until three in the afternoon, from noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the whole land. This is the moment where all the sins of humanity are being laid upon Jesus. And about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Elah, Elah, lama sabachthaniya. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the son of God. Martin Luther said this, the leader of the Reformation said, the, the mystery of the gospel is the day God forsakes God. It's this moment where Jesus in his humanity is on the cross. Sin is placed upon him. And in that moment, now he's completely human. And he feels the full weight of separation between God and man. That's what sin is. It's separation. Separation. And he feels that moment. And he goes, he directs his disappointment. He directs the dark cloud over him. You know where he directs it? He doesn't direct it at the people around the cross. He directs it up. And he says, where are you? Why have you abandoned me? Why have you forsaken me? He cries that out in that moment. But when you go over and you look at Luke's account of the same thing, not only does he say that, that's not the final thing Jesus says. That's like the second to last thing Jesus says. He says, God, where are you at? Have you forsaken me? Like, what about the promise? He's in that moment, and that's not the last thing he says. He directs that disappointment towards God. He gives God the tough questions, and that's what we do with our disappointment. God's not afraid of your disappointment. He's okay with your questions. Just direct them to him. The last thing Jesus says is, unto you, I commit my spirit into your hands. And that's what we do with our disappointment. We bring our tough questions to God. We bring our disappointment to God, and we tell him, God, I'm disappointed that my son's not healed yet. God, I'm disappointed 
that I haven't seen the promise fulfilled. I'm disappointed. However, unto you, I commit my life, my spirit, my life, my finances, my marriage, all of me. Unto you, I commit myself into your hands. And that's how Jesus finished his life right there. Unto you, I commit. You know what it is? It's a statement of trust. I don't understand where you're at. But even when we can't track God, we can trust God. Even when you can't feel God, you can put your faith in God. Even when your emotions aren't lining up with everything, you can say, God, I place my hands, I place my life in your hands, I place my spirit in your hands, I place my finances in your hands. And that's what we do when we feel like our prayers are unanswered, we feel like the promises are unfulfilled. Amen? Come on, let me pray for you. Lord, we love you so much. And God, I thank you for this word. I I think this was for someone here today that they're dealing with disappointment. And now their disappointment has actually turned to doubt. And now they're doubting if you are a good God. They're doubting if you are a loving Father. Maybe even doubting if you're real. Maybe doubting if you care. But God, right now in this moment, we just do what Jesus did. We direct that question to you. Where are you at, God? I feel like, I don't, I feel like you've abandoned me. Feel like you're not there. Haven't answered the prayer. Haven't fulfilled the promise. Where are you at, God? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's how we feel at times. But the truth is that Jesus was forsaken in that moment so that we never would have to be forsaken. He took our place. He took our place. And now, God, what we do is we direct all of our questions to you. We bring our disappointments to you. We bring even our doubt to you. And this is what we do. We, we make a decision to say, unto you, I place my life in your hands. God, we make that decision today. With every head bowed and every eye closed, let me ask you this. And I'm going to pray two prayers. One, I want to pray for those that maybe you're dealing with disappointment. And the second is I want to pray, and if you want to become a follower of Christ, you can, you can receive Christ today. But this first group here, with every head bowed and every eye closed, you say, Jason, will you just pray for me? I'm, I'm dealing with disappointment, and I realize that the disappointment is actually, it's, it's with God. And that's you today. Listen, I believe God wanted to speak to you today, and, and I, I believe he wanted to say, I get it. I know you feel disappointed in me, but will you just trust me? I am a good father. I am a good father, and I love you, and I have a plan. I have a plan for your marriage. I have a plan for your future. I have a plan for your, your children. I have a plan. I have a plan. Just will you trust me? I feel like God wanted to say that to you today. I have a plan. If that's you today and you say, I just, I feel disappointed. Will you just lift up your hand? I want to pray for you. Thank you. Thank you. I think God wants to minister to you right now in this moment. God, you see those that raise their hand. Holy Spirit, will you speak to them? Not a preacher. Not a communicator. Holy Spirit, speak to your sons and your daughters and say, I have a plan. I know it's been hard. I have a plan. I know you're disappointed. I have a plan. I know it doesn't look like it's going to work out, but just trust me, I have a plan. Holy Spirit, minister to every single person. Give them the faith to keep trusting and believing that you are for them and that you love them and that you will never leave them or forsake them. You have a plan for them. 
last thing is this. If you're here today, you say, Jason, I, I'm not a follower of Jesus, but I wanna be, I wanna, I wanna today, I wanna, I wanna commit my life to becoming a follower of Christ. It's very simple. The Bible just says that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord, that's Jesus, that they can be saved. How simple is that? We just say, Jesus, save me. Hosanna, save me now. And if that's you, I just want you to lift up your hand. You say, I want you to pray for me. If that's you, you say, I want to become a follower of Christ. Just lift up your hand. Anybody in here, you say, I want to become a follower of Jesus. Amazing. Can we just pray this together? Just say, Jesus, forgive me of my sins. I commit my life to you. I will follow you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name, amen.